QC Pod is a production of the Queen's Podcast Lab. This is QC Pod. I'm Jason Tuga. QC Pod features the people, projects, movements, and ideas that make up the Queen's College community. To learn more, visit us at queenspodcastlab.org slash qcpod. Today, we welcome Ann Powers to QC Pod. One of the nation's most influential music writers, Powers is critic and correspondent for NPR Music. She's been writing for The Record, NPR's blog about finding, making, buying, sharing, and talking music since April 2011. She served as chief pop critic at the Los Angeles Times from 2006 until she joined NPR. From 1997 to 2001, Powers was a pop critic at the New York Times, and before that, worked as a senior editor at The Village Voice. She began her career working as an editor and columnist at San Francisco Weekly. Powers has published four books. She co-wrote Tori Amos, Piece by Piece, with Amos, published in 2005. In 1999, she published Weird Like Us, My Bohemian America. She was editor with Evelyn McDonald of the 1995 groundbreaking book, Rock She Wrote, Women Write About Rock, Rap, and Pop. And she was editor of Best Music Writing 2010. Most recently, Powers is the author of Good Booty, Love and Sex, Black and White, Body and Soul in American Music, a comprehensive book that's as well-researched as it is readable. A book that both demonstrates and extends Powers' unique talent for what some have called poptimism, an unbridled, often hilarious, and always loving celebration of popular culture, even while she offers nuanced accounts of its crimes and injustices. In Good Booty, Powers traces the sounds we hear in music today through traditions beginning in the 19th century and all the way through the 20th. Powers lives in Nashville. She was recently a guest in the Night News Visiting Journalist series. She's a brilliant writer, thinker, and conversationalist. We sat down to talk music towns, the evolution of music criticism, the roots of American popular music, her close encounters with Prince and Bono, and a whole lot more. Ann Powers, welcome to QC Pod. I'm so happy to be here today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's our pleasure. We're very excited to host you. You live in Nashville now. How long have you lived there? We moved here in 2015. Before that, I was in uh, Tuscaloosa, Alabama, of all places, for six years. Uh, Roll Tide, for any football fans out there. Uh, my husband teaches at University of Alabama in the American Studies Department. Eric Weisbart is his name. He was a music journalist for a long time, an editor at Spin and the Village Voice, edited the legendary Spin Alternative Record Guide, co-edited that, but then went back to academia. We had met when he was just starting to be a grad student at Berkeley, and he went back, and now he teaches courses about popular music studies in Alabama. But we lived in Alabama for six years and then decided that we would relocate because for my work and also for my personal sanity, I needed to be in a city. <laughs> Everyone in my family, my, my teenage daughter also, we all, we all prefer city life to college town life, I think. 
And the thing about Tuscaloosa, Alabama, is that it might sound like nowhere to you, but it is four hours from a whole bunch of somewhere. So it's like hmm. under five hours to Atlanta, Memphis, Nashville, and New hmm. Orleans. So we considered all of those cities and finally settled on Nashville. Can you live anywhere working for NPR? This is one of the reasons why I ended up at NPR, mm. actually, because I had been working at the LA Times and we were living in Los Angeles. And when Eric got this job and we realized we were going to have to relocate to uh, Alabama, I went into the office and I'm like, look, <laughs> you know, I'm really sorry. I have to move to Alabama. And I expected them to be like, oh, you, you know, it's it's been fun. Bye. Mm. But actually, my editor at the time said, well, why don't we try you working remote remotely? And I did that for about a year and a half, but it just was very hard. I had to go back to L.A. all the time. And it was, you know, th I mean, the Internet made it possible, but it was just not a really appropriate. And so when that situation kind of, you know, devolved and everyone involved realized it wasn't working anymore, I started uh, thinking, well, where could I work? on a national level while living in Alabama. And I mean, it really is this, this kind of simple, I said, Hmm, national public radio. <laughs> That's a national organization. And I had some friends who were working at NPR music and approached Anya Grunman, who was then the, uh, the head of NPR music and said, Hey, I'm looking for something. And, um, she very kindly, and I hope she would say smartly, <laughs> created a position for me. So you landed in Nashville. You've been there six years. Yeah. And what would you say about Nashville to a person like me who's never been, but whose head is filled with the mythology of Nashville? And I will also just say the television show. <laughs> yes. Who was your favorite character on uh, Nashville, the what was the first ABC and then later CMT television show? Yeah, I mean, I think I got to go with Raina James. <laughs> ah, Raina was incredible. I once got to uh, do an edition of, uh, I think it was Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Gosh, I don't even remember. Down here, and uh, she was one of the guests. Connie Britton was one of mm. the guests. So I only got to say hello to her for like two seconds, but I was like, I saw the hair in person. It was very exciting. Her hair is as spectacular as you'd ever would have thought. <laughs> yeah, she manages to bring gravity to situations where you might not think that was possible. <laughs> it's true. I was a big fan of Scarlet. I just loved, uh, mm. I love Australian actors doing Southern accents. It's like a particularly uh -huh. weird uh, stew. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I really enjoyed, I enjoyed her character and her struggle. Yeah, I enjoyed her too. <laughs> and of course, Will. Will was an awesome character. But this is not yeah. becoming a... Uh, Nashville television show podcast. <laughs> no, no, no. But I am. I, I do want to say about Nashville. I don't actually remember if it was one or two seasons, but when it first started and T-Bone Burnett was involved, mm -hmm. the music, A, was really good. It but was. But two, something happened that never happens on TV, which is that they played the songs all the way through. Totally. I mean, the first couple seasons of Nashville, I actually recommend them to anyone who's curious about what it's like to be a working songwriter, obviously mm. in Nashville, but even anywhere. But it really provided a, a pretty realistic window into the life of the working songwriter 
here, you know, they were when the characters would like go into one of those offices on Music Row in mm-hmm. a little house, you know, and mm-hmm. spend the day with a stranger trying to mm-hmm. come up with ideas. That's really how that's how it works. And um, and it's kind of surreal because uh, whatever Carne- uh, Raina James's label, I can't remember what it was called, but the office for mm-hmm. it that was in the show still is still it's still there downtown like they still have the storefront so i keep oh, whenever wow. i drive by it's right by the public library so i'm like hmm i wonder if deacon's in there <laughs> hanging out <laughs> but yeah i mean that's a good segue into talking about what nashville's like because the distinctive characteristic of this town that makes it different than any other music town maybe in the world is that here, music is a profession, and it is for, you know, there is an idea of, like, the working musician that is very different than the idea of the pop star or the rock star mm-hmm. or the indie star or, you know, mm-hmm. the struggling bohemian. It's it, There is a very, very much an ideal of a musical middle class here. And the only other city that I've ever really seen that, see that work is New Orleans. And in New Orleans is uh, another city that I love and where we did consider living. But in New Orleans, it's very much tied to the tourist industry, which it is also here tied to the tourism industry. Um, There's a lot of that Nashville mythology that you mentioned is is alive and well in all the honky tonks and the pseudo honky tonks and the faux honky tonks in this town, not to mention every coffee shop and, you know, wherever else. But Nashville has both the live music industry that supports a kind of working and middle class of musicians, but also the recording industry because the majors and all the big indies are here for country music and increasingly for all kinds of music. And mm-hmm. there's so many studios, home studios, and you know, you can, you can make a living as a studio session musician, as a songwriter, as an engineer. And, and I really love being able to immerse in that environment. Yep. As a person married to a singer, you're making me want to move to Nashville where there's a middle <laughs> class for musicians. <laughs> well, you know, the pandemic has hit the whole industry hard and um, prices are also going up here because uh, uh, in no small part, the television show that we were talking about contributed to the fact that Nashville's been in quote unquote it city and it's being uh-oh. rapidly gentrifying. But mm-hmm. also there's being there's a real reckoning happening right now. Uh, which we can talk about, you know, with especially mainstream country about who actually gets to be in that middle class. And uh, it's a very white, historically white scene. And so um, a heartening aspect of, of what's happening now is that if you've seen any of those debates about, you know, racism in country music, partly this is happening because there's been a growing community of non-white musicians and Mm. music industry people here which i think is the most single most important thing to making Mm. this a true representative Mm -hmm. american music town so what are some of the concrete forms that reckoning is taking well i don't know how familiar your listeners are uh with the recent controversy over the uh, country star morgan wallen who was recorded using a racist slur and um, that incident 
it pumped up this conversation that was already happening about uh, representation in country music and who uh, who gets played on country radio, who the labels support, you know, who gets the gigs in studios, etc. So because that happened during the pandemic just a couple of months ago, most of what's happened so far has been just discussion. There's been mm-hmm. great discussion, mm-hmm. but there has also been some concrete change. Apple Music, I will say, has done a great job when they all of the streaming services opened offices here in Nashville uh, within the past couple of years. And Apple, um, in launching their Nashville branch or whatever, they took the tack of like uh, hiring a very diverse group of uh, DJs and including uh, making sure there were shows devoted to LGBTQIA country, to mm-hmm. country artists of color, you know, Americana artists of color. And, you know, diversity was a big part of what they did. So you have a show like Reese Palmer's show, Color Me Country, which has been in the news a lot. So that show, you know, predates the Morgan Wallen controversy, but she, who is an incredible person, incredible artist, also. She's been able to really use that platform to raise a lot of uh, talk about these issues. And it seems like people are listening, but we'll see. It's hard to say. You know how everything feels a little semi-frozen because of the pandemic? And I think we're all talking a lot. And um, it's, uh, you know, I want to see what happens when boots are on the ground and, you know, guitar cases and turntable cases are on the bus again. And then let's let's have that conversation again. It's hard to remake an industry when the industry isn't really operating. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. Well, it's strange because the industry is operating, but um, in this virtual reality, that's uh, it's uh, uncanny. It's genuinely uncanny. (laughs) We're living in that uncanny valley here. Yeah, of of streaming live shows. Yeah, but I mean, you know, I'm excited to see see how things play out, and I'm. I really admire people, artists like Mickey Guyton and Reese and other artists who have put themselves on the line to talk about what it's like to be a black artist in Nashville. And, um, and I think people are listening. We have a very long way to go, but I do think people are listening. Mm. You've lived in a lot of music towns, mm-hmm. Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, Nashville. Ha- has living in Nashville shaped the way you write about music or the way you experience music? Well, I'm going to go back uh, several years, even decades, before I moved to Nashville to start my answer to that question. You know, there's this ideal for critics, particularly, but and journalists, although the ideals play out slightly differently uh, for each of those categories, and I do both of those things. This ideal of critical distance or objectivity. That ideal is all about... You know, you are not personally invested in your subject, that you are not, you know, there's some basic rules. John Perellis, my mentor at the New York Times, used to say, I can't do a real imitation, but he'd say, (laughs) no sex, no money. You know, it's like you can't be personally romantically involved with your subject and you can't be taking money from them. Well, that's the basic. But then, you know, in a lot of cases, especially in the mainstream media, there was also this this. Um, understanding that a journalist uh, would not socialize with an artist, would not, you know, that the hangs that we would, you know, we'd hang with an artist, but only on assignment, that you wouldn't, you know, that you'd be operating at a remove from your, from the whole world you were writing about. And I didn't really start out 
espousing those ideals because I started out in the alternative press, which is a pretty ragtag anarchistic space or was and living in Seattle and then San Francisco, I, you know, I lived in art worlds, bohemian worlds where everybody interacted. But then I, I, you know, I moved to New York in my late 20s and I started working for the New York Times. And that's, of course, the bastion of these values. And, and John Perales, who I mentioned, who was my mentor at the time, you know, he really impressed upon me. Don't hang out with your subjects. You know, that's not what you should do. And I think there's a lot of value in that. And so so I didn't for a long time. But then after about almost a decade in New York, I moved back to Seattle and I worked in a different kind of job. I worked for a museum then called the Experience Music Project. And um, there I was working directly with musicians on exhibits and, you know, commissioning works. I remember, I remember, for example, there's a singer songwriter in New York, you might know named Joseph Arthur. And I, Mm -hmm. I was the first person to like commission an artwork now he has a parallel career as a painter, but, mm. you know, and hang an artwork of his in a museum. So things like that. I was working directly with musicians. And, and at the same time, I wrote a book with Tori Amos, the singer-songwriter. And in doing that, that was a highly collaborative and very, very intimate experience. Um, I went on the road with her. I spent time with her at her house where she has her home studio in Cornwall, England. And mm. those experiences made me realize that I have been depriving myself of a lot of knowledge and understanding about how music works because I think that distanced critic always thinks about sort of the more esoteric aspects of music making. You know, we're, we're, we are all about the reception, right? The reception of that music. And what I was learning was the nuts and bolts of, you know, the technical aspects, how, you know, how what equipment you're using affects your music making, how your physical reality reflects that you know and I remember the the moment that I realized that was I was on tour with Tori and one night she was having terrible problem with her monitors and I just I was like oh wow there have been so many times in the past where I thought a musician was having like an emotional breakdown Mm -hmm. on stage and it was just (laughs) that their monitors weren't working (laughs) so Nashville because Nashville is this company town uh, and you know many companies not not just the mainstream country music industry it offers a great opportunity to really see how music world works on every aspect and you can get to know engineers and producers and spend time hanging out in studios you know being able to for example getting to know Dave Cobb who uh, you know is a producer who's worked with so many of the breakthrough artists in Nashville of recent years like Chris Stapleton and Jason Isbell and Brandy Carlisle um, when she came to Nashville and just being able to be in the studio sometimes and just watch him mostly on assignment but you know having that like more day-to-day connection has taught me a lot about what that process is you know and I think that's valuable for me mm-hmm when you were talking about Tori Amos, it was reminding me of Hanif Abdurraqib's book about a tribe called Quest, which is called Go Ahead in the Rain, where he writes with a lot of intimacy about the artist, but in particular, Fife Dog. There's this difference between Fife Dog and Q-Tip, where Q-Tip is obsessively making these loops and, you know, day and night and day and night, but Fife Dog's diabetic, right. and he doesn't have the energy for that. Right, right, right. And it right. changes his relationship to the music. yeah. And it just, you know, it just seems so fundamental to think about that. It's funny how the 
the industry of popular music fed the mythology of popular music, I think, in the rock and soul era, you know, the era where I grew up, I was born in 1964 and um, grew up, you know, my music life began sort of in the 70s. And um, that was the time when the stars were more separated than ever from fans. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, by the time the 80s came around, I think the indie world, you know, there was a lot more connection between musicians and their audiences. But on the mainstream level, that distance remained, you know, and it was sort of like musicians became more like uh, other kinds of pop stars. And in that process, uh, the bodies of musicians were forgotten. The working lives of musicians were yeah. forgotten or were um, were hidden. You know, all of the things that uh, remind us that our musicians are people. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's good to remember that stuff. At the same time, I do think it's that critical distance remains valuable as an internal value. So, mm. you know, even though I might, you know, hang out with Dave Cobb and like have lunch with him and he can tell me about how the room at Studio B here, historic RCA Studio B where he works, you know, how the wood in the room affects the sound of Stapleton's mm. voice. And that I can learn from that. I, like, I still have to be like, I'm still a journalist. I'm still, you know, a writer. I'm not, I'm not Dave's BFF. So I think those things mm-hmm. are important to remember. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. it's a challenging time to remember that. I think the internet has really collapsed the distance among people in ways that are both very exciting and democratizing, but also sometimes distorting. Uh-huh. Do you ever feel inhibited by the fact that you may be writing about people who you are going to run into in your daily life? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough question. I mean, if I were to be completely honest, I'm not going to say that's never crossed my mind. It mm. definitely crosses my mind. But at the same time, I think any artist I respect or any person in the industry whom I respect understands that my job is to assess the work. And I've never really been huge advocate of the pan or the super mean negative review. I just feel like, you know, what are we getting out of that? That seems like an ego move on the part of the critic so often. So maybe, you know, for me, it wasn't as big. It's not as big of a crisis as it might be for someone else. Correct me if I'm wrong, but as somebody who's followed your work for a long time, I don't believe you've written a pen. <laughs> I once uh, wrote something about Don McLean, the writer of the song American Pie, that caused him to write me an obscenity, uh, <laughs> an obscenely related letter at the New York Times. And um, I once wrote a rather lovingly negative review of a Donny Osmond Christmas album that caused mm. Donny to write me a letter saying, let me take you out to lunch and charm you into <laughs> liking me. So I'm oh, sorry wow. I've had a few times. I think, you know, I think live reviews gave me a chance to do that. I, I will admit that for me, that was never, that was just never a, a priority, you know? I mean, I kind of felt like if I didn't like something, then I would just not write about it at all, <laughs> you, you know? Yeah. I yeah. mean, I, I especially in this day and age, because the value, the the only arguable, well, there are a couple arguable values for negative reviews. One would be for the historical record, and I think that's fair, you know. Yeah. But the other would be for consumer reasons. So, my dear friend Bob Criscow, years for years he wrote something for the Village Voice called the Consumer Guide, and you know that was about. And people I know, I don't know if you were one of these people, but people would like 
you know, take the consumer guide and go shopping with it. And mm-hmm. whether mm-hmm. you, you know, depending on if you loved Bob's opinions or hated them, you would buy everything he recommended or you would buy everything he hated, you know, depending. But now because you can stream everything, like that kind of consumer side to writing about music is uh, changed a lot, yeah, you know, yeah. I think. I remember they used to have those listening stations at Tower Records. Yes. Could yeah. do a little bit of checking out. <laughs> yes, and you could, like, give it a little listen. And Yeah. Uh, yeah, I worked at Tower Records when I first lived in San Francisco, so that was my my oh. big education as a, as a music lover, and that really was a huge part of me becoming a music critic, I think, because I was able to immersed in so many different kinds of music it was you mm-hmm. know i could have a jazz phase or i could you know have a i don't know indian music phase only listen to ragas for a month uh you know i yeah. was really into reggae and african music and for a, a white girl from seattle who grew up like on basically on rock and roll you know it was so great to have all that music at my fingertips your wikipedia page says that you started writing professionally in high school. Yeah. <laughs> Is that yeah. true? Yes. And was it about music? Yes, yes. I um so I went to a Catholic high school, uh Blanchett High School in Seattle, and I worked for the newspaper there, the high school newspaper, the Mitre. It was called the Mitre after a bishop's hat. And uh you know, I was a teenage girl. It was uh the turn of the seventies into the eighties. There was an exciting punk scene happening there in Seattle, but as a teenage girl, I didn't necessarily know what my place was in the scene and I loved to write. So I to create a space for myself really in the scene, mm. I started writing about bands. Mm. Like I was just you know, and I do think it's important to say, and I've said it many times. For a teenage girl, if you didn't have a designated space, I wasn't, uh, I, I dabbled in music, but I was never going to be, you know, a musician myself. Uh, if you didn't have a space, then it was assumed you were a, a groupie or, you know, mm-hmm. you were just a fan. You were just there to to hook up with the boys in the band. Mm-hmm. And even though that scene, actually, there were a bunch of strong, interesting women in bands at that time, it was, as with, I think, most regional punk slash new wave scenes in the late 70s and early mm-hmm. 80s there were all these cool young women in the scene but but if you weren't making music why were you there if you were a girl whereas that mm-hmm. wasn't the case if you were a boy you know mm-hmm. no one assumed mm-hmm. you were just there to like hook up even though some of the boys were <laughs> yeah especially know? in new wave <laughs> yeah. yes for sure i was one of those boys <laughs> <laughs> exactly and there's no, and no shame in that like that's cool yeah. Uh, yeah. you know and i did want to meet boys in bands but i also wanted to like have conversations with them and right. i wanted to talk about music with them so i started interviewing bands for my high school newspaper and i interviewed there were two kind of like main new wave bands in Seattle. There was the Cowboys and the Heaters. And the, the guy who managed mm. the Cowboys, he was this kind of Reuben Kincaid, like from the Partridge Family character. Mm-hmm. And um, he just took a shine to me. And he recommended me to this woman who worked at the local music publication, The Rocket. 
the rocket was this very cool publication i think it was monthly at that time that later became kind of famous because it was run by uh this noted writer charlie cross charles r cross who um went on to write biographies of nirvana and Jimi hendrix and Mm -hmm. stuff and it was the place where all those seattle bands first had their exposure but this is back in the 80s and it was a really interesting underground publication that published you know very strange writers um published a lot it was music based but it also um had this it was run by uh, art designers art directors uh, this guy bob newman who went on to be the art director at many big new york places he was at the voice a lot of people went to the village voice from the rocket but also de- i think gq details anyway the reason i bring that up is because the rocket is was also the launching pad for all of the your favorite comics artists linda berry mm. matt graining mm. um pete bag started at the rocket all of those folks started there. So that was the, you know, it was this really cool publication. So Carrie Jacobs, um, who went on to work at Architectural Digest, I think. Anyway, she she called me in for a meeting. And I mean, I, I <laughs> my memory of it is like going into this really dark office that only had like, you know, a folding chair and a desk. And she's behind the desk and sitting there and, you know. Uh, it it felt very surreal to me, but she liked me and she started assigning stories to me. So initially I wrote about local bands and then I started getting other assignments. I wrote about the Go-Go's. My first mm. national uh, level interview was with Jane Weedland from the Go-Go's. My first in-person national interview was Joan Jett. You know, uh, even wow. then I got kind of slotted into you know, oh, she's a girl, so she can interview the girls. And then she's young, so she can do like young people stories. So I would write about like skateboarders or all ages clubs and stuff. Mm. And then um, I went to University of Washington for a little while. And I also was an editor there. So then I continued to uh, at their newspaper, the the UW Daily. And I, um, I can I just continued like doing that stuff. And then when I moved to San Francisco, I was 19. I already I had decided that uh, music writing was, uh, you know, it wasn't true art. So I wanted to go Mm. to San Francisco and like study poetry and um, or at least hang out with poets. I had this idea there. (laughs) There must that was like Lawrence Ferlinghetti, RIP. You know, he was down there at City Lights Mm -hmm. Bookstore. And so I moved to San Francisco. But uh, that's when I got the job at Tower. But then I started writing for uh, what later became the SF Weekly down there. And I became an editor there. And. Um, that was my early path. It's so interesting in relation to your discussion of objectivity and journalism to think about the fact that you got started to make a place for yourself in a scene. Yeah, yes, completely. Which, I, you know, I think that's true for a lot of people. And then somehow you get trained into a different relationship to the subject matter or something. Yes, yes, that's so true. That's so true. But I will say my impression of your work, I mean, you've worked at the SF Weekly, the Village Voice, the New York Times, the LA Times, NPR, you've written four books. And if there's a through line in this stuff, I got to say what I want to call it is love (laughs) or maybe intimacy. Thank you. That means a lot, actually. Thank you. (laughs) And to me, it seems like an ethos that's always been Mm there. Uh, It isn't really about a distance. And that is something that you brought to music criticism that really is in some ways revolutionary because Uh (laughs) a lot of it is 
about being arch and distant, mm-hmm. right? And yes. since I spend a lot of time with musicians, I often hear them say things like, nobody should be allowed to be a critic unless they've lived as a musician or whatever. You know, right. they yes. say things like that. Yes. And I would say, you know, I don't really agree with them. I get why they say that. But your writing doesn't cause any of the offenses that they would be <laughs> complaining about when they say that because it has always seemed to take into consideration the whole person mm. who you're writing about and the challenges of the industry and the joys of creation and the difficulties of negotiating labels and touring and even talking to journalists. Yeah. I don't know. And I'm just wondering <laughs> how how intentional has that been? Well, since I started so young, I, you know, and I didn't, we can talk about this also, but, you know, I didn't go to J school or anything. I never studied. Yeah. I mean, I, aside from high school journalism classes, I never took a journalism class. I, um, I sort of had to invent my own style and I did definitely have influences. Griel Marcus, uh, the great mm-hmm. critic and his book, Mystery Train taught mm-hmm. me so much. I think Griel is also a writer who comes from a lot of the same. I mean, he's, he and I are very different, but He's a very emotional writer, so yeah, in his own way. And I was very influenced also by like English writers, uh, because mm-hmm. since you and I are the same generation, uh, maybe you were doing the same thing. I would go to the record store and I would read The Face and mm-hmm. New Musical Express, oh, yes. because the sounds, mm-hmm. you know, and Melody Maker and the mm-hmm. you know English writers. While I don't think they were necessarily coming from a place of love, <laughs> they were irreverent, you know, and they right. were. I mean, sometimes yeah. the opposite, but they were very irreverent. So there was always this sense. And also English, the English music scene in the 70s, uh, in the punk scene, it was very much a mix of all kinds of creative people. So the musicians were important, but so were the people who were making the clothes. And so were the mm-hmm. people who were running the club. Right. And, right. You know, so were the writers. And, and so I, I was very early on kind of both in love with this idea of an art world and also immersed in it because, Mm -hmm. and when I use the term art world for the students out there, I am taking that from the great sociologist Howard Becker, who wrote a great book called Art Worlds. And an art world is, it's an ecosystem connecting creative people, uh, some of whom are artists, some of whom are running the spaces where art can happen, some of whom are uh, distributing the art, all of that stuff. So I was very into that, and and I think growing up on the West Coast, and especially Pacific Northwest and then Northern California also made a huge difference. Mm-hmm. You know, when I came to New York, I met a lot of people who had grown up on the East Coast or at least gone to Ivy League schools, and they, te- you know, they. I'm this is not a diss, but you know, they tended to have a different attitude. Mm-hmm. For me, I don't know if it was because it was like the '70s coming out of the counterculture. Uh, into the, you know that there was this lingering sense of counterculture or I really think being in this very queer space in San Francisco in the early and mid 80s made a huge difference but it was just like everything everyone was creative everything that you did in your life was about being creative but mm-hmm. it wasn't necessarily about climbing a ladder or making the greatest work of art ever. I mean, maybe we know when you're 20, everybody wants to make the greatest work of art ever, but it was like your daily life was creative. And there were lots of people in my world who were 
living these productive creative lives but they weren't necessarily making quote unquote like official art mm -hmm. or music or whatever you know mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. so that really informed my value system because I maybe even idealized that dedication to the creative life and to me that was the only thing that really mattered you know like what I mean is I didn't care to judge others for the supposed value of their creativity as much as just be part of what nurtured creativity and kept it going. <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. to me, that was almost like the, this sounds so corny. I feel like I'm being very new age or whatever. <laughs> Do I sound corny? <laughs> to me, it's not corny. To me, it just sounds like a version of the lovingness that I picked up on earlier you know yeah I mean you know like think about it this way you know when I lived in San Francisco I lived in a few different group houses but this one particular group house I lived in and everybody in it was a young person most of us worked at Tower Records so we were all into music but a couple of the the women who lived there were also worked at this thrift store called Buffalo Exchange, and mm -hmm. there were just like hundreds of vintage dresses in this house. Mm -hmm. The house was decorated with stuff we found on the street and like like weird art projects that people would make. And, you know, some of us were studying creative writing at San Francisco uh, State University, but there was also, you know, kind of like people who were doing street theater, you know, or whatever, or just like weird performance art or whatever. And mm -hmm. this house was just, you know, we would throw these crazy elaborate parties that in themselves were like art, <laughs> art events, you know, and, and just that day to day thing, like living in the process. And that's what I came to love about the art life. And I never had any thoughts. Certainly, I had thoughts of like, fame and glory. But you know, I didn't, I didn't have any connection to what I later learned in New York was so central to so many people's idea of uh, what made art important, which was you won prizes or you got mm -hmm. this particular job or you got on the cover of that magazine. And, right. you know, that was not my world. Like my yeah. world was you did a cool thing. <laughs> Yeah. And that was it, you know. So I think that was foundational for me. And then I also think, I don't know, I mean, I got into women's studies. I took my first women's studies class when I was a freshman in college. And I became really connected to feminism and radical feminism, actually. And uh, 70s radical feminism really won my heart in lots of ways and cultural feminism. And I was very besotted with these writers who were writing about how you know, a feminist vision of the world would change the world from the root of it, you know. And uh, when you're engaged with those kinds of ideas, you you really question mm -hmm. the kinds of hierarchies that uh, that are sort of at the heart of a lot of traditional criticism. Yeah. And then later, when I went to grad school at Berkeley, I got my master's there. I was lucky enough to discover cultural studies with the Birmingham School, um, Stuart Hall and Dick Hebdige and Angela McRobbie and Paul Willis, these great writers who were writing about subcultures. And I recognized myself in that work. And in their writing, they are really academically analyzing those systems that include fans and include, you know, all the kinds of creative people we're talking about. And so I came, I just like everything that I was learning added up to this vision of of art making that was much more collaborative and joyful and intimate, you know. 
yeah. than what yeah. your standard review might. I mean, I actually think criticism has come a lot closer to where I was when I started. Yeah, I think it has, and partly because of your influence. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> I mean, one thing about your work is that you manage to very skillfully and organically sidestep hierarchy without even having to necessarily tear it down. And mm. I mean, all kinds of hierarchies, like <laughs> there's the indie hierarchy where, you know, Taylor Swift is never going right. to be on the ladder. Right? <laughs> right, right, right. But you're putting Taylor Swift on the ladder. Yeah, and yes, in yeah. some ways you're mixing the worlds by by refusing their hierarchies. Well, that I think came from as a reaction against um, attitudes I was seeing in indie rock in the 80s. So, yeah. you know, I could always relate to fans so much because I myself had been this teen. I never lost touch with that teenage girl that I was inside, mm -hmm. you know. And I never lost touch with the fact that that teenage girl had been looked askance at by, you know, cool kids, like by the cool boys in the Seattle rock scene. So so the negative side, like if all this, what I'm talking about, you know, my life in San Francisco and um, that scene, which was a, it was a pretty diverse and very, like I said, very queer and very um, outsider-ish scene. In my high school years, I definitely encountered that kind of boy indie rock snobbery that, um, mm -hmm. you know, and I felt uh, shut out a lot. And even if I wasn't like explicitly shut out, I knew that I had owned a Barry Manilow cassette when I was 13. <laughs> and I liked the Bee Gees and my best friend and I had gone to uh -huh. see... The Bee Gees uh, star in the movie version of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band five times. That movie was, you know, considered the worst rock movie ever made, but we loved mm -hmm. it. So, mm -hmm. you know, I never let go of that teenage girl. <laughs> and yeah. I wanted to figure out ways to, to I guess, honor her, you know. Uh -huh. Well, Rock She Wrote seems like one good way to honor her. <laughs> you published Rock She Wrote in 1995, and I'll just tell you, I know people for whom... They will just say, that book changed my life as a young person. <laughs> and I'm curious to know about how it came about. I would imagine it came about partly as a response to all that indie rock male snobbery that you're talking about. Uh, yes. <laughs> but on the other hand, it's also, you know, it's it's a subcultural book. Right. It's not like celebrating bright pop exactly either. No. You know, you know? Well, I have to give credit to Evelyn McDonald, my co-editor on Rock She Wrote. She published a long article in The Voice. The Voice had this... I was working at The Village Voice at the time, and Evelyn also was writing for The Voice. And she published this long article called The Feminine Critique that was a recuperation of of women rock critics. And out of that article came this, this project. Mm. And I had been... Gosh, you know, I have to admit, I don't remember if I was the music editor at that time. I feel like... Anyway, uh, Evelyn and I had our, you know, we were friends. We, she had also, she's not from the West Coast, but she had for a time moved out to San Francisco and she worked at the SF Weekly too. And hmm. so we had met there and then we were friends in New York and we had actually co-founded this, this uh, group with our friend Felice Ecker. 
Oh, I know Felice. Who uh, is a great uh, part of the New York scene and runs the publicity company called Girly Action. Mm-hmm. We had founded, and, and Vicky Starr, her partner, the four mm-hmm. of us founded this group called Strong Women in Music that was like a net advocacy group for women in music. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were doing all this stuff. So, so it came out of that. It came out of the spirit of the Village Voice. The Village Voice, I think I probably idealize it, but I have never encountered a newsroom like that anywhere else that was full of so many characters, so many incredible writers, but also just so many different kinds of people. Mm-hmm. And that was the place where I really truly learned what diversity meant, you know, what it was like to work with and be close to people who had had very different upbringings than me. You know, it was it was just a great progressive space and um so that book rock she wrote is it's probably a little overly (laughs) influenced by the voice there's a lot of voice pieces in it Mm -hmm, (laughs) but mm -hmm. we really i think that was the ideal you know we shared this ideal of um, not only lifting up women's voices but making sure that you know women of color were represented that queer women were represented that rock she wrote you know could be as diverse as possible Today I look at it and I say, why didn't we have Phil Garland, who was the music writer for Ebony in there? Why didn't we Mm -hmm. have Jane Scott, Mm -hmm. you know, the Mm -hmm. uh, famous writer for the Cleveland Plain Dealer? We made mistakes, but, you know, I think we were really driven by this sense that the viewpoint of women in music writing not only was not only important for the simple fact that uh, women matter, whatever the category of woman means, (laughs) but also because... Um, because women were so often at the margins in music writing as in all writing, you would find the most creative work from women. You would also find elements of coverage that, you know, men just hadn't noticed or hadn't thought to, um, to explore. So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, what I love about Rock She Wrote the most is that it's just a great anthology, no matter mm-hmm. the gender of the people writing, mm-hmm. and, you know, mm-hmm. I think it really shows that women had to live by their wits as music writers and um, told some of the stories that no one else was telling. Yeah. Well, thinking to what you were saying about your influence of 70s feminism and this idea of, well, this idea that in your work you s- celebrate and nurture art, I, I don't think those things are simple. Mm. And, and Rock She Wrote shows that actually, right? Because there's a lot of ambivalence Mm -hmm. about the world of the music and the writer's relationship to the music. And the ambivalence includes the love and the rage, and it includes the joy as well as the disappointment, the profound disappointment, right? Yes, Um, yes. So all of those things, and I think the nurturing has to be all those things, or it's just not real nurturing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that, you know, we were talking earlier about how I don't write a lot of negative reviews, but I I hope that in my work I have given space and voice to, you know, negative emotions. Have they been, how they've been expressed in art and also how, mm-hmm. you know, I've experienced them. And, you know, I, I, I think you'd need that depth. And, and also, mm-hmm. you know, I've definitely written a fair amount about how certain groups of people and individuals have been marginalized and expressed... I don't know if rage, rage isn't really my jam, but, (laughs) you know, I think that you have to acknowledge the incredible inequities of historical Mm -hmm. inequities in popular Mm -hmm. music in the industry in this 
country and the world, I think you have to acknowledge the often uh, horrifying way girls and women have been treated, but also you, know, you have to acknowledge the racism, you have to acknowledge homophobia, you have to and, and confront all of those things and like the structures that have supported them. And, you know, I've written in recent years, a few pieces about you know, the exploitation of girls and young women. And I know that's really on a lot of people's minds now. I also want to say young boys, you know, that mm. also have been often exploited mm-hmm. within the music industry. So, you know, uh, right now I, f- I feel like it seems difficult for all cultural commentators to find any kind of balance. And, you know, balance and nuance is those are huge values for me i I see the Mm -hmm. value in i see the point of rage and i see Mm -hmm. the point of calling people out absolutely 100 percent. but i was always interested in also kind of like trying to figure out why why things happened you know Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. i think that's one of the cool things about rock she wrote is like there's definitely strong feminist pieces in there that uh, decry inequality. And then you also have uh, Jan Uhelski writing, I dreamed I was on stage with Kiss in my maiden form bra. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just a, that kind of like joyful piece about um, about being a kid in, in the music scene, you know? Yeah. Well, in your most recent book, Good Booty, the subtitle is Love and Sex, Black and White, Body and Soul in American Music. And you do a lot of what you're talking about. Mm. And early on in the book, you make this point that I think is really illuminating that Americans are not so great at communicating about sexuality and sex in particular. Yes. But that maybe we do it best through music. Yes. And I'm, I'm curious, what made you think to write this book? What was the kind of like hole in the history of music that Mm. you felt like needed to be filled? Well, it's hard to say, you know, I think for most authors, it's difficult to like pinpoint that moment when you knew you were going to take on a project. But I do have one kind of moment of germination that I think about a lot, which was I was um, out in L.A. I think I'd already moved to Alabama, but I was probably in that time I was still working for the Times, L.A. Times. And I was having lunch with my friend Josh Kuhn, who's an incredible writer and uh, professor at USC. does a lot of amazing work on audiotopias and the border. And he's just a great scholar and writer. And uh, we were talking. I'm like, I don't know. What should I do? My, I want to write a book. You know, I want to write a magnum opus. Blah blah blah. And he's like, Well, and we're. He's just like, Anne, you need to write about sex and music. That is an ongoing thread in your. That is just one of the mm-hmm. threads that you always write mm-hmm. about. And my, mm-hmm. my first book, which was called Weird Like Us, was all came about in a similar way. I was struggling. What should I write about? <laughs> I should write a book. And my husband Eric, he said, You should just write a book. That's that's has the same spirit as your column that you used to write. I used to write a column for the SF Weekly called, uh, it was originally called Street Life, then it was called Dream Street. And that was just a column about kind of bohemian life in San Francisco as I was living it. So, you know, I tend to listen to my friends when they say, hey, this is happening mm. in your work. I mean, mm. I, I think any any writer who's, you know, immersed in their own work doesn't necessarily see those threads. So it helps to have a friend say, this is you're obsessed with this thing (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
I, and I'll just add, I didn't want to write a book about women in music. I didn't want to, mm -hmm. and I didn't even necessarily want to write a book about gender, although the book turned out to be, to a certain extent, about gender, and then also very much about race, but I can tell you about how that happened. But I just felt like this idea that the erotic, and, and especially Audre Lorde's idea of the erotic as the nurturing of the the spirit inside you that is your life force that no one can kill and that, you know, that carries you through. And that may be a different uh, definition of sexuality than most people adhere to. But for me, that's really what eroticism, eroticism is life force and sexuality is the framework in which eroticism is expressed. So that's mm -hmm. what I was kind of trying to get at. So, when you decided to write about eroticism mm -hmm. in music, two things seemed to happen, and I'm curious to know why they happened. One, you went to the 19th century. Yes, right, yes. All the way up to, yes. let's say, Janelle Monet. Yes, yes. And two, to write about sex, you had to write about race. Yes, totally, completely. So I'm just curious to hear about why those two things needed to happen. I always knew that to tell the story of uh, American popular music and sexuality, I would need to confront the racism of that is, you know, fundamental, foundational in our society and our culture. But definitely writing this book during the period of time I wrote it, the mid-2010s, when the movement for mm -hmm. Black Lives really was uh, mm -hmm. redefining public discourse around white supremacy and the aftermath of uh, slavery in this country uh, had a huge influence. Also, living in the South, you know, I had never lived in the South until I had barely been to the South until we moved to Tuscaloosa right at the beginning of the 2010s. And you can just feel that in the soil, truly, you know, in the architecture. And we, you know, we spent, we would go to New Orleans and spend time in New Orleans and I'd always loved New Orleans, you know, as a super fun place, but I began to really believe, and I still believe, that New Orleans is the, it is the true capital of American culture. And I will mention also Katrina happened during this period of time, mm -hmm. too, before mm -hmm. I started Good Booty, but, you know, the post-Katrina, the, you know, recovery process in New Orleans, it, I think that threw into light you know, how that city has is both incredibly resilient, the people of that city are amazingly resilient, but also how much they have been marginalized and oppressed and, and um, delegitimized culturally. And so I just became fascinated with, with that city, and with the way in which it offers, you know, a true template for American culture, and music culture as a space of connection, among such so many different kinds of people that includes, you know, oppression and includes objectification, but also includes, you know, survival and thriving and and forbidden intimacies and and challenges to hierarchies. And, you know, I, I just wanted that to be the place where I started. So I got really lost. I mean, I spent a year on that first chapter. <laughs> mm. My editors weren't super thrilled about it, but um I got super, super immersed in that story. But I think, I mean, I guess history is bearing out that decision because now, I, you know, the conversations we're having now about 
the sources of American culture, I think, are going back to that same space. I, you know, one more thing I'll say about New Orleans, it's a truly multicultural place, Louisiana, and I mean multicultural, you know, French, Spanish, mm-hmm. enslaved African, Creole, Irish, English, Native, Indigenous, all of those different kinds of people met on the streets of New Orleans, and they communicated so much through music. And so then also the story of how enslaved Africans kept their own cultural memory alive through music uh, as a kind of a, you know, as an absolutely subversive element and force, um, I found very inspirational. And again, it connected to this idea of Audre Lorde that the erotic is about that within you that cannot Mm -hmm. be extinguished no matter how oppressed you are. Mm -hmm. You know, writing for NPR, an audience could develop an idea that like somehow NPR is going to cover a kind of like mid-range music for middle-aged people kind of thing, right? But it's very much not what you do. I can only imagine the sheer volume of music that passes through your life on a weekly basis, and I have no idea how you sort through it. But it seems to me that you make a decision to think about what's coming from the margins and what are the values of those margins, and and instead of imposing the center's values on Mm. them, Right, right, right. To me, this seems like something you do. Is that is does that sound right? Well, I have to shout out my colleagues at NPR Music, and particularly Bob Boylan, who was the founder yeah. of All Songs Considered and of NPR Music. And you know, I mean, Bob has always been about exactly that. You know, yeah. and and yeah. Um, he's yeah. a musician himself, and I think he he was you know the principles upon which NPR Music was founded was exactly what you're saying to really connect with music at artist level and and try to not necessarily uh, be beholden to trends or the industry, all those things. I mean, when I first came to NPR, I was writing a lot about pop music because nobody else was, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Pop Culture Happy Hour, total respect mm-hmm. to Linda Holmes and the crew, Stephen Thompson, they were covering it. But, you know, so so you talked before about you mentioned before that one thing I've done in my career is, and we didn't really talk about poptimism, <laughs> but yeah. you know, have championed pop music at, in in environments where pop was was uh, considered trash. Um, mm-hmm. So I did. I've done that at NPR, but I think you know, over the ten years I've been there, it's amazing. I've been there ten years, but I've been able to. I mean, I have a blessed amount of freedom there, and I've been able to write about so many different things, just that I care about. You know, writing about Taylor, like you said, Taylor Swift or Beyonce, you know, Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it has been about, especially when I worked for World Cafe, it was so great to be able to like interview someone who maybe didn't even have a record out. But, you know, Mm -hmm. that was great. But I'm lucky to work for a team that's that, you know, everyone on that team is interested in some aspect of music culture that isn't in the center. And Mm -hmm. I just feel lucky to be in that environment. We definitely, I think, with you know, tiny desk concerts have become super popular, and now we've mm-hmm. got major, huge international stars doing them. So you're mm-hmm. seeing more BTS or Miley Cyrus or whoever. Mm-hmm. I love Miley, by the way, <laughs> but but uh, and respect to BTS too. And I, you know, I'm amazed by that whole phenomenon. But, you know, I think it's always a balance. Like, I think everyone yeah. on our team is dedicated to still making a space for that mm-hmm. um, person who may be your next favorite, but you don't know yet. That's right. that's a goal for us. Yeah. I got to say shout out to 
BTS and <laughs> K-pop in general and their fans for all the work they've done around Black Lives Matter. Oh, actually. totally. Amazing. No, it's amazing. The uh, the fandom is a huge political force now. It's it's yeah. fascinating to observe. Totally. All right, I have one more question. I heard a story about you and Prince. <laughs> And Everything comes back to this. <laughs> I hope you will tell this story because I think <laughs> listeners would love to hear it. <laughs> well, it's funny you should mention that because I'm currently working with the BBC to make a whole radio special about this. I uh, oh. And I've been thinking about why everyone is still fascinated with the fact that I did an interview with Prince in 2007, I guess it was. I'm terrible with dates, but, you know, and I uh, I spent an entire I mean, essentially an entire night with them. I think I it went till four in the morning. And it was just an incredibly surreal experience. And I wrote about it as such, you know. I think what's endured about this, the reason this story has endured, I hardly think I was the first person to have this experience with Prince or with, you know, any number of musicians where you really get taken on a roller coaster ride or however you want to say it. But... I think because I wrote very openly about what mm. that experience felt like to me, it's getting a little bit back to what you're saying about my writing being about love. I mean, it, it's, I, I really felt with that piece, I was able to share my emotions, and, you know, including my incredible, I am such a fan of Prince, you know, but also my sort of like confusion. <laughs> so just for those who haven't read the piece, Prince was p- living in Los Angeles at the time, and he was putting out a trilogy of records via Target. And he, uh, I received a phone call at like 7 in the morning or an email, I guess it was, saying that he was inviting journalists over that night to um, listen to the records. And it seems that I was the only one to respond. I don't know, but I perhaps only was the first to respond. But it ended up that evening I drove up to his, in my little dusty Mazda protege, my sea green Mazda protege. I drove through the <laughs> gates of Beverly Park, this incredible gated community where he was living and, you know, pulled in next to his Maserati or his Rolls or whatever was there and uh, parked and entered into the home he was living in. And he, um, you know, just led me on this listening adventure. So we listened to all three records in different environments that he had clearly staged you know for mm-hmm. for me mm-hmm. you know we listened to one of the records in his car which he had purchased from miles davis <laughs> another one we listened to in his bedroom you can imagine what a lifelong fan of prince uh who is a heterosexual woman felt like sitting in prince's bedroom watching him dance around to this record uh all i can imagine is the inside of the 1999 record right now. <laughs> there was no nudity, the no semi nudity. He was always, he actually did change his outfit three times, but, um, wow. he was, but was there satin? <laughs> <laughs> but he, it was just, you know, I think I was so nervous during that time, uh, during that, while we were in the bedroom, I was just like, oh, you know, but, um, <laughs> Then he, then we got he had uh, one of the records was was actually featured his then protege Bria Valente so then she shows up she kind of comes down the stairs and mm. you know they're super dressed up and we end up getting whisked away in this limo and going to this club and you know where Prince casually jumps on stage with the band this I mean the whole thing it was like a fantasy and you know what did Prince do if not build fantasy so he had built one mm-hmm. just for me and as Amazing. a and, and, you know, this is a good case of, like, there was no critical distance. Like, yeah. how could anyone have maintained critical distance? But 
I was able to maintain the distance of the storyteller in that I, you know, could write about it with myself as a character and stand back and say, this is, you know, here is a master of manipulation, a master of of world building, building this mm-hmm. world for me. Mm-hmm. And that was an incredible experience. I will also say that Prince never let any journalist take notes. So mm-hmm. I had to reconstruct the whole thing from my mind. Mm. <laughs> so that was an interesting challenge as well. And then the last little secret, I don't think I've shared this with too many people, but after the piece ran uh, one day, I received this incredible flower arrangement that was like these. So that record was, that project was called Lotus Flower. And he sent me this incredible arrangement of like three lotus flower shaped candles floating in mm. this this kind of like dish of rocks and cacti and things. And, and it was just like his thank you, you did a good job thing. And I, wow. I just like that was the crowning moment. And I saved one of those candles. I have it somewhere in <laughs> my candle so. from Prince. <laughs> I mean, from here, it just seems like you made really good life choices to end up in that situation. <laughs> well, you know, I, I didn't, I, I will say that like many years later, I received another phone call to go interview Prince again in Minneapolis. And at the time I was uh, involved in, I don't know what I was doing. I was being an idiot because I said no. So like mm-hmm. I've made some bad life, life choices as well. And that was one okay, of them. Fair. But you know, I've had I've been able to have these fun encounters with like many of my idols. I yeah. I got to be rowed across the river Liffey by Bono of U two. <laughs> that was exciting. You know, I I've uh, I've met Madonna. You know, I've interviewed Garth Brooks. I've you know all these huge massive stars. But and th- those moments have been f- very fun for the most part. But I will say, I think I've garnered as much emotional satisfaction from just having like like a singer songwriter like down here mm. there's a woman named Erin mm. Ray like who I I would call her a friend I guess at this point you know come over to my porch and like record a song for Facebook live and sit there with her band and you know mm. mm-hmm. uh to me that's just as rewarding and or talking yeah. to you today I mean these are all, every mm-hmm. thank you every active exchange has a lot of value for me and I think maintaining that sense of it all mattering is a big part of my work as well. Yeah. Well, it goes back to the ignoring the hierarchies. Yeah. Or, you know, being aware of the hierarchies. Or, I mean, not ignoring, sidestepping. Right. Yeah. I guess yeah. Say. Yeah. Sidestepping them, working through them, questioning yeah. them. There's a wonderful new book I'd like to recommend that everyone read called Liner Notes for the Revolution by Daphne Brooks. It just came out. She's an incredible scholar out of Yale. And this is a story of black feminist sound uh, for, throughout the 20th century. And I just recently did a, I did an interview with her. And we were talking about how in this book, she writes the stories of these forgotten and semi-forgotten people, but also of her own family and like her own mom hanging out in record stores and, you know, mm-hmm. growing up in the Jim Crow South. And one of the messages I take away from that book is your margin is somebody else's center. Mm-hmm. And it's always so important to remember that. And yeah. and reading that book really made me realize that that's a big part of my yeah. of my philosophy as a writer. Yeah. And yeah. you know, when I was working at the the Times, both the New York and LA Times, that was sort of when I would go looking for stories. And I guess at NPR too, I always would think about that. Like, where can I go that is somebody else's center? You know, mm-hmm. 
And I, I think the important, crucial reckoning that's happening right now, the readjustment and the recentering, we didn't even talk about the Turning the Tables project at NPR, but that's mm. our goal with that project is to like re, you know, readjust the center. But it's also important to remember that even without those readjustments, which are absolutely necessary, valuable work is happening in these yeah. in these corners. You know, my the initial title I wanted to have for my book Weird Like Us was uh, Brighten the Corners, which I was stealing from a pavement album. Mm. Uh, I also like the title Brilliant Corners, which is an Ornette Coleman album, mm-hmm. because that's where I came from, and that's where I think so much life happens. Yeah, that makes sense. A lot of your writing is is about those corners. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I just got to ask this question. It doesn't necessarily need to go in, but was Prince easy to talk to? Incredibly easy to talk to. This is um. what's so, you know, what I loved about well, first of all, he he knocked me off my feet. He totally, like, he disarmed me by when I walked in the room. And like I said, I'm sure the whole thing was totally staged. But when I walked into the kind of office in this house, there were <laughs> two young guys who were like his, his webmasters there. And they were like showing him a webpage. Well, that had to be staged, but whatever. But yeah. um, <laughs> he turns to me and he says your hair's not red anymore. And I'm like, how the hell does my idol, who I have loved since I was 18 years old, know the color of my hair? And, you know, this is the kind of research. Taylor Swift, you know, she did something like that when I met her too. She knew a little factoid about me or my Mm -hmm. husband that I didn't expect her to know. That is a very good tip for uh, artists. If you want to disarm a journalist, (laughs) do a little research on them. So, Mm -hmm. uh, but then, you know, from there, he was... There had just been an interview in The New Yorker in which, now this was when Prince was a Jehovah's Witness during his uh, fervent period of his faith. And he had made a remark that many people had interpreted as homophobic in The New Yorker, and a Mm -hmm. brouhaha had ensued. So early on in our process, I asked him about that, and I think I just was empathetic, and he, he opened up to me and, you know, talking about how, how he had been not misquoted, but I think that he had said some things that didn't truly represent how he felt. Mm-hmm. And after that, it just like, he was relaxed. He was very funny, you know, mm. kind of playing characters and jokes and, you know, stuff like that. And so charming. I mean, I think the mm-hmm. only person who matched him for charm was Leonard Cohen when I interviewed Leonard Cohen mm-hmm. in a very different way, you know, the elegant older man way. But... um. Mm-hmm. Just so charming, you know, that I think, you know, that's how a consummate entertainer controls the situation. (laughs) Right. Right. Sounds amazing. (laughs) You've been listening to QC Pod, the podcast about all things Queens College. We're on Twitter at QC Pod and on the web at queenspodcastlab.org slash QC Pod. Our producer is Liseth Moreno. Our theme music is Lake Monsters by John Flansburg of They Might Be Giants. I'm Jason Tuga. Thanks for listening. <laughs>